If you really believe in your idea, it can be very tempting to take the biggest check you can get because it's just like, it's so much more peace of mind. But I think the thing I've seen happen so many times to a lot of my counterparts that have taken those bigger checks is then there's this crazy pressure to, to spend the check. Like you have to show this crazy growth and take over this huge piece of the industry or else you're kind of, no one wants to give you more money. And even if you do that, you still have to go get more money because you, you're not profitable. Elizabeth, thank you so, so much for joining us today on Demo Day. Thank you for having me. So Elizabeth, you and I first met on an intro call and I was absolutely like just so impressed by how you in particular transitioned in such a tough environment around COVID. And I know we're going to get kind of uh, into your story and how you've made that transition. But, you know, before getting into Broadway Roulette and, and Mixer and all of the cool things you're doing, maybe you could, uh, you know, take us back to the early days, uh, give our audience a little bit more about, you know, you, where you're from, and uh, really excited to, you know, learn about your journey and how you got here. Yeah, um, it was a journey. I, I'm sure that you talk to many people who don't have like a traditional, like went to school, knew what I wanted to do. Everything worked out the way I thought. Um, I was a creative writing major. I had a poetry degree. So that was about as useful as you think it's, it's going to be. Um, but I knew I wanted to live in New York. So I graduated a year early. Um, I moved to New York City. I lived and worked with my boyfriend's mother, which I would not recommend. Um, <laughs> it was, it was dark days, but I learned a lot. She's a really savvy cutthroat businesswoman. I worked for her for one year. Um, and I ended up kind of falling into fashion and then celebrity journalism, um, from there for her, I was making like these fancy handbags and selling them to these giant accounts, uh, which I had no business doing, but I did because of nepotism and I took full advantage of it. Um, and then as a celebrity journalist, I started covering Broadway and, you know, it was such like a drop in the bucket compared to all of the movie premieres and like club openings and all of those things. And every time I went, I was like, God, why don't more people pay attention to this? Because this is where like the real talent is. I understand why movie stars come to Broadway for six weeks to like say they did it. And I started doing research about the industry, realized that there was, you know, 30% of the seats are going unsold every night. It's inventory that's lost forever. It's not like a t-shirt that you can sell later. Um, a zero is a zero. And my husband and I started sitting down and putting together a business plan um, at the time, we were not married, but we were living together and we were operating an Airbnb out of his old apartment. And everyone who stayed there were these foreign tourists who all wanted to go to Broadway. Um, they didn't care what they saw. They just wanted to see a show. And over time, that kind of developed into me, in addition to sort of being hostess, getting them Broadway tickets. Um, and that kind of all coalesced together at the same time. And I decided to go ahead and go for it. So I ran the company for about 18 months while I continued to be a full-time journalist. Um, and when I say like ran the company, I mean, we put a site on WordPress and I ran around to box offices and I bought tickets and I handed the tickets out in front of the theaters. Um, we had no, it wasn't like licensed. It wasn't a formal business in that regard, but the idea was just to hustle as much as possible and get enough bulk of like purchasing done that we could go out to VCs and other people and say there's actual market here. And so, and so for those, those that don't know, or have never heard of Broadway roulette before, 
what exactly is Broadway Roulette? I, I yeah. know I know you were um, getting getting to that place, but but um, yeah. you know what what exactly is Broadway Roulette for for anyone that's interested in the world of Broadway and, and shows? Sure. So the basic concept is Priceline for theater or any kind of live event. Uh, for, it's for people who know that they want to go do something. They want to do something social and cultural, but they aren't necessarily sure what that thing is, or they, they are sure that they don't really care what that thing is, either of those. Uh, we then, you pay a flat fee up front. You give us, you pick your date, the number of tickets. You give us some preferences about things you like and don't like. And then we have an algorithm on the back end that runs and matches you with something that's going to be a great fit. Uh, you get a discounted ticket with a great seat, but it's not a show that you picked. So it's a surprise, which is the roulette part of Broadway roulette. That is amazing. That is when Broadway is running. That is what we do. We currently do not sell tickets because there are no Broadway shows. Well, we are, you know, for people that are going to listen to this, you know, 20 years down the road, they're going to be like, what is she talking about? Yeah, there is this thing called COVID right now that is uh, caused, you know, not just in, in your industry, but in so many industries. Uh you know, so much, so much problems, but it's also, I think, created these opportunities for us to get so creative and think outside of the box. And, uh, you know, I'm really excited to get back to this place, you know, in a little bit, but maybe you could take us way back to the beginning. You know, I know you mentioned that you weren't originally from New York. What, where'd you grow up and what'd you do for fun? You okay, know, the real beginning. Oh, all the um, way back. I mean, I, I, I mean, how, how long do we have? The, the like reasonable length for a podcast, I suppose. I was born in Virginia, but I lived in New York when I was really little. Um, my dad stayed home and took care of me. It was the eighties. It was when New York was not that safe and also wasn't really a thing dads did. Um, but my mom was a surgical resident at NYU. And so they didn't have, there was no childcare besides my dad. Um, he's also a doctor, but not a surgeon. So he was finished with school earlier. Uh, we left New York and went to Tennessee when I was four and I did not understand why anybody would ever leave what the place that we had left to go to the place that we went to. Um, and then I spent the rest of my time just telling my parents until I was 18 that I was going to move back to New York. Um, we ended up moving from Tennessee to Colorado and then out to California. My mom's a plastic surgeon. So, you know, spoiler, we ended up in L.A., and I went to UCLA. Um, as I mentioned, I was a creative writing major with focus in poetry. Um, and, but because it was such a huge school and they have so few, the prereqs are almost zero. If you just take basic AP classes, um, I was able to finish a year early. So I graduated at, uh, 20 and packed like one suitcase and moved to New York. Now, and now going, going back to, you know, sort of like the, the high school and then into college days, I, I know that you were a poetry and, and creative writing was such like a big part of what you yeah. were doing. Was there ever a thought in your mind that was like, I want to be an entrepreneur or were your parents kind of uh, mentors in that way? Like how, how did you transition? Yeah, I think, so I think what happened is I was always an entrepreneur. Um, I didn't recognize that myself necessarily. My parents come from the generation of doctors who were not, didn't consider themselves entrepreneurs. I think now doctors are much more, much savvier and know that they need a marketing person and they need a, you know, they need more than just a front office manager. Um, my parents didn't have that and they didn't, they didn't know anything about anything besides being a doctor. So the only thing we ever talked about at home was just don't be a doctor. Just be anything, but don't be a doctor. Unless you want to go to school until you're 38 years old, don't be a doctor. And so I, I really, I think I fell into the, 
I don't know, it's not really a trap, but I kind of fell fell into the same bucket that so many people do that if your parents didn't have their own business and you didn't, or you didn't come from a family that just kind of fostered entrepreneurship from a very early age, then you, you're a little lost. You go to a liberal arts school, the people that are in charge of your education are probably the most out of touch group when it comes to <laughs> the people that be giving you guidance about your career, right? They're well-intentioned and they're smart, but they didn't, nobody in school ever once said to me, what are you going to do when you grow up? Um, I was dating a guy whose mom was basically a New York socialite and she met me once and realized that the only way to get her son to come back to New York would be to get me to come to New York. So she offered me a job for which I was not qualified and that was how, and then I came and then he followed, you know, six months later and everybody kind of got what they wanted. Um, but that I took that cause I honestly didn't know what to do. And then I was really good at it. I was basically doing, I was basically doing like customer relationship management and sales. Um, but I wasn't trained for it. I had, you know, I just, just went out there and she bought me like two theory suits and like sent me off to Hewlett Packard. It was looking back on it. It was alarming, but at the time it seemed very normal. <laughs> do you, um, do you think of, do you think of her as your first mentor in business? Yes. yes. I mean, I, I, I was, I will be dating myself slightly, but when I was working for her, it was the era of Devil Wears Prada and I was reading the book and I couldn't read it because like I had to stop reading it because that it was actually my life. Um, it was, you know, we, I, we went on, we stayed, when we went on business trips, I was, we stayed in the same hotel room and we stayed at these really fancy hotels, but like you know, I watched the woman pee on multiple occasions. While we were <laughs> you became was, very close. <laughs> it was alarming. Um, and she was really tough, but you know, she, her biggest MO was just like, fake it till you make it. That was the thing she always said. She also had no business background, but she was married to several men over the course of her career who were, and like, she figured it out. So, you know, she made a company, built a company from essentially remnants from divorces. If I was going to put it in a, in the real, in the real way. And, and when I left there, I came to New York and, um, I, you know, ended up, I wanted to work in the business side of fashion and I, I thought that's what I wanted to do. And then I realized what the salaries were going to be for that and how I was going to actually live. And I kind of got tired of getting paid in shoes <laughs> and I ended up on, um, I was working at Calvin Klein and I ended up having to baby, this also dates me, but I had to babysit Lindsay Lohan one day. No um, she, was doing, she was doing a fashion show for Calvin Klein. She was wearing a Calvin Klein dress to like a celebrity fashion show. And my job was to babysit her during the day while she was at Calvin Klein. That was my very glamorous fashion job. And I think my, Cal, I think my salary at Calvin Klein was like $35,000 a year. It was something like just insulting. Um, and I was at a party the next week and I was telling somebody about how all I did for her was heat up whiskey in a coffee mug in a microwave that she brought with all of those things she brought with her to the place, to Calvin Klein, to the office. And I, that was my only job. That was all I did. And I was my whole job the whole day was just heating up whiskey for her in a coffee mug. And um, I was telling somebody this at a party and they were like, they worked for a celebrity magazine and they were like, can I use that? We won't quote, we won't like say who it is, but I can pay you $400. And I was like, wait, what? You can pay me $400 for that? Like, that's what I make in three days or whatever it was. Um, and so I guess it was an entrepreneurial spirit that led me away from fashion writing towards celebrity journalism. 
Um, it's one of the things where you can have, if you're good at it and pretty ruthless, you can have these very short spurts of work that lead to high payouts. Um, that has changed somewhat in the last like, you know, 15 years, but um, it was a lot of bang for the buck. I had a lot of free time on my hands and, you know, I spent my twenties doing that in New York city and it was a, not a bad gig. What, what was like some of the things, you know, I always love asking, like, what did you take away from your early days? Like, you know, in these early days of entrepreneurship that you now pull into today, what were some of the things that you, you know, still like. I mean, the absolute number one thing is I have been told to, to F off by, I don't know, everybody ranging from like, you know, Angelina Jolie to like the bikini waxer of Megan Fox, like in Chicago, you know, like every person that you ever come in contact with tells you to go away and they're not going to talk to you. And you just have to keep like the way those magazines get their stories is you, you just keep going back. And eventually somebody says, okay, or that somebody changes their mind. One of those two things happens. Um, but it requires a very thick skin resilience. and an ability and a, a resilience. And I would say uh, ability to like see new ways to get to enter. There's um, not always just one door. If you want information about whoever it is, talking to their actual friend is probably not the way to go. Talking to the person that you think they might've dated three years ago, who they like burned or didn't show up for the last date, Like that might be a better person. And how can you find that person? And then going through the like six degrees of separation to find somebody who can get you to that person who's still angry at this other person. I mean, it's not like the world's most noble career perhaps, but it does provide entertainment for people. Um, and I think that that really, uh, going into an industry like Broadway, where, you know, one of the things in early days that the, the VCs in particular, they look at a company like what, like the one I have, and there's nothing proprietary out the door. There's not an obvious, like we can patent this. Nobody could ever copy it. Um, and the answer to like, why can't anybody ever copy it? It's here, Julia. Sorry. The answer to why can't anybody ever copy it is that nobody would, because it's just such brain damage. It's just, it's an industry that's so insular getting a new foot in the, getting anybody's foot in the door that isn't my dad already owns the building is almost impossible. And most people just don't bother because it's just, it's a lot of pain for an industry that's $2 billion industry. Like, it's just not a, it, there's just, that alone is not a big enough nugget for somebody to go through that pain. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing I would say that I took away is I basically had to make up my own rules for how I was going to behave like, in terms of how I was going to conduct my quote business um, as a celebrity journalist there were no rules. I mean, there are no rules. They send you to wherever they think someone's getting married and say, go to the wedding. And that's what you get. So wow. you have to decide, am I willing to dress up as a cater waiter? Am I willing to book? <laughs> like you have to have all of the, you have to know in advance, like what are the things you're willing to do? What are the things you're not willing to do? Like what lines are you not going to cross? Um, and I had to kind of set that moral compass for myself and then sort of stick to it. And I think that that's served me really well because I think the entrepreneurship and getting VC funding is in a lot of ways, there is a lot of gray area in terms of moral compasses mm -hmm. and um, not just with like NDAs and things you reveal and don't, but just in general about projections and giving information to your cap table and being upfront when something doesn't go well and 
also being able to cash it into a press release if it wasn't a success. Like I think there's a lot of things like that about how honest and upfront versus how much spin. And, and that was something that I got a really good solid grounding in from deciding that, no, I am not going to crash funerals. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I think like you just were saying, you know, even when it comes to raising money from a VC, there's, you know, unlimited ways of doing it. And sometimes if they say no to this way, you have to be able to think about, you know, how you can connect with them on a different level or how you can still get the same goal um, while, you know, while, while still staying within your moral compass and your moral boundaries. Now, once you started to go from, you know, journalism and then, uh, you know, transitioning that into your new business and, and this new wave of entrepreneurship, was it any specific like book or was there any specific person that was really influential in you kind of moving away from journalism and then starting to think about like, what's the next step of your life and what, what do you want next for yourself? Um, so kind of, I, you know, I, I did have foot in both, in both whatever puddles, I don't know what to call them. That's what it felt like. Um, and for a long time. Um, and that was really the product of, I didn't have, I knew I did not have a resume that I could just call and get meetings and someone would give me money. There was just, that just didn't exist. And also the industry is pretty small. So the biggest hurdle for me to get real, like any venture capital in place involved was they look at Broadway, they look at the size of the market. It's not pets, it's not weddings. And like they cl- before they get to page two, the thing is just off the table. And so I had to be really creative about what I could make that I could then show as being replicable in other markets mm. so that it wouldn't just be kind of too small for everybody. And um, the decision to go for it really came from like having to pick one. Like there was just, it got to a point where I, if Broadway roulette was big enough that I just couldn't do both. And um, I gave, I, w- I gave birth to my first child and they like, we're wrapping him up and my phone rang and it was the general manager for Jersey boys, which at that time was still on Broadway. I've been trying to get this phone call for like a month and I took the phone call. Like they came to bring the baby over and I was like, no, no, no. Like I'll get it in a minute. And that was when I, that was my own moment of just like, okay, I think that the choice is the choice that I think is not so obvious. I think it's actually obvious. Um, cause I just took that phone call and that's not normal. Like I care about this a lot. So I should just listen to that. Um, and so that was really, I mean, that was really it. There wasn't like one person. It was me in that moment. Like, yeah. It wasn't that moment. It was like two days later being like, I guess that makes sense because I didn't, I didn't care if I missed like the party, the opening night of whatever, like that wasn't a big deal. Yeah. This felt like a really big deal. And so that was kind of like my, my own decision. So, you know, I will say my husband was very, uh, supportive and influential in terms of just telling me that I could do it. Uh, I think, I do think there's a Mars Venus situation with raising money, not just venture money, but any money and also running businesses. Um, I think, I think if I'm, I'm sure it's maybe not a popular PC view, but I do think there are fundamental differences between the way most men and most women operate and talk to themselves. And uh, getting over that was, I probably wouldn't have done it without my husband behind me saying like, just go for it. And if you fail, it's fine. Like just do it anyway. It doesn't matter. Like just, I know you want to do this, just go for it and you can do it. 
It is, um, it is amazing. You know, I, I feel very similar. My, my wife now at the time, uh, she, she was actually just my roommate, you know, and uh, I started Coefficient Labs in the apartment with, you know, my roommate sitting going, oh, that's cool. What are you working on? And, you know, years later, we're now married. And I think uh, often about how important it was in those early days that, you know, feeling that support and feeling the, that she had my back and that even if things didn't work out, that, you know, I could still make it. And it's, uh, it's really awesome to have someone in your corner like that, that really does yeah, no, was, give you that. It was really, I think about it a lot though, because I think about going into meetings and the way, the numbers that I present and the way that I present them um, versus the way that he'll present things that are the same question. Um, but there really is a difference. Uh, I I really had to work on not qualifying things and not apologizing. Mm. And I am not a wallflower and I am not shy and I am not somebody that I would consider to be in any way, shape or form uh, like dorm, a doormat. But I do like when I, I feel like I have to constantly qualify everything before I say it when it comes to the numbers. And that's something I've really had to work on. Um, and I probably wouldn't have gotten funding if I hadn't had my husband next to me being like, no, 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 stop talking this is going to be X. This is how big it's going to be. It took a year of me watching him do that to actually be able to do it. So, so now might be a good place for us to think about, you know, for someone that doesn't have, like, I feel like you and I got so lucky in that we had a partner that was willing to say like, Hey, you've got this, you know, you need to have that confidence. You know, it's hard to say what would have been had we not had that, but what sort of advice do you have for the younger, you know, the younger female entrepreneur that does have that negative self-talk, that is saying to herself that I'm not going to be able to get funding, you know, I'm sure that there have been many moments where you've had to kind of build your own strength. What do you tell the, you know, the younger entrepreneur in, um, you know, working their way into this sort of a world? I think you want to find other people who can be your own age and in your own situation who just have really positive, optimistic energy. Mm. And some of those people are also entrepreneurs who are also trying to go chase things. And some of them are not. Some of them are just people that are positive and optimistic. And I think that that can be really helpful. If you're someone who tends to be hard on yourself, um, I think it can be really helpful to just find a group of like three or four friends, not to constantly be like cheerleading you, but just be giving you reality checks that your what you say is like the reality of the situation is actually like the most pessimistic possible view of the situation. Um, having people around you who can tell you that's, you know, you haven't had the meeting yet, go have the meeting and then come back. Um, I think that can be really helpful. And I think um, uh, now more than when I started, there are a lot of resources for that for like women looking for other women, though I would not fall. I, I would not say you only need women. I think there is nothing wrong with having, having people around you that are men that are interested in the same industry or also doing entrepreneur stuff or just great, like have good energy that yes. are going to take you out and get you to go do things. Like, I don't think it's gender specific. So, um, so let's like double click into that for a minute, because I think that it's such an interesting point that it sometimes gets talked about of the like, you're the sum of the five people you surround yourself with or, you know, but I, I think that when you have that sort of negative self talk, and you're sort of just feeling very pessimistic, I do imagine that, you know, if you kind of audit the circle or the people you're with, you're probably not surrounding yourself with these really positive, energetic people you know, in, you know, in this sort of a world and environment, what would you do 
if you didn't have those positive friends? You know, what would you do if you just found yourself surrounded by, you know, people that are like, eh, maybe you shouldn't go for it or it's probably not going to work. How do you get out of that kind of cycle? So I think you have to have boundaries. We all, like, I have very good friends now that are still part of my closest circle that I absolutely love and adore, but I would never, ever ask them for business advice. Um, and I actually wouldn't ask a lot of them for personal advice either, but I, I love talking to them about like their projects and what they're doing. And I love talking to them about my kids and I love talking to them about fashion. They're people that I met in all different places in my life, but I recognize that they have their own limitations and that people who um, haven't pursued their own independent business doesn't have to be a huge VC start, you know, funded startup. They, they don't have, they're not good at giving advice about specifics to, for your business. Mm. And so there's people I put in a bucket where it's like, you're my personal friend and we do personal stuff, but I don't like run my work problems by you unless I actually just want to bitch because that's <laughs> what we're going to do. Right. And sometimes that's fine. Like sometimes you'd need a bottle of wine. Totally. And you need to but if I didn't have a group that I felt good about right now, I would honestly invest in getting one. Like that sounds really trite but like that's what I would do um there's a couple books that are really good about that there's one called like how we gather or something like that it was written by this woman who has the startup for like underwear that you oh my god Spanx? what are they called no not Spanx it's actually it's like under they were originally marketed as like period underwear but now mm. I cannot remember what they're called they turned into like anything underwear the CEO's um, like we're sure. not period underwear <laughs> you know they, they, yeah. period underwear because the marketing didn't work um, but the company still exists and I'm sure if you Google like period underwear, it will come up. And she wrote the woman who founded that wrote a book about, um, like how to, how to find a new circle of friends post school. And it's not like revolutionary stuff, but I do feel like it was good because it gives you kind of a runway for how to do it kind of step-by-step. Step. And I think, you know, things like there, there are so many groups now for, right aspiring entrepreneurs for people that are interested in like, you know, social networking on um, like the, all of those kinds of things that you can connect with on like Facebook and Instagram and all of the social media, which I realize is like a whole other beast, but I think you can find like two, you only need like two or three of those, you know, and like one or two. Okay. Family members. And then you've got your five, five yeah. is not that many to get. And I think it's like, so, like you're saying, it's like, it's less important on the how you do it and more important on the why you're doing it. Because I think yeah, a lot of people don't even realize, they don't realize how much it impacts you when you have a group of people that go, I don't think you should do that. Or it's, that's never going to work. Like you don't really realize how much it impacts you down the road versus really having does. those friends really that does. are like, you should go for it. Or, you know, that give you that, that positive yeah, energy. I mean, the other place that I have found people, which you have to be a little bit further down the road. It can't just be like idea on a napkin, but between idea on a napkin and I have 50 people working for me, there is a middle ground where um, you are starting to work with other people that are outside of your organization who are your, who are like doing work for you or you're there doing work for them. And those people that are like the ones you interact with tend to be on that same playing field. So for example, I had an I had an ad manager who became like a great trusted confidant who then like left and was no longer ad manager, but she's about my age. We have similar interests. She's really ambitious. She's very positive. She knows my business like nobody else because she ran our ads for, you know, two years. And so she's like a great resource that happened very naturally. And I think that that is a really 
people that you click with that you're working with outside of your own organization can be really good sounding boards because they have your best interest at heart, not only because you have a personal relationship with them, but also because they, they do genuinely want it. your business to do well because you're working together. So there's a lot of um, overlap and interest there. And I think that's actually a great, you have to be kind of one level, you have to be a functioning business where you have other people you're interacting with, but that's not that far away. Right. Um, that can be pretty quick that that starts to happen. Now, talk to us a little bit about the transition between you literally running around the city, making this happen, like any itching and clawing your way to getting your first customers to then going and raising funding. Did you go through a normal friends and family? Did you go through angels? Did you go through institutional? Like what was the kind of process? And maybe even before that, when did you know it was the right time? Yeah. So I knew it was the right time when I was on the phone in the delivery room. Um, that was the right time. That was when it was like time for someone else to be also available to answer the phone. Um, and someone else to be available to answer the phone required a little bit of funding. Um, so that was how would that happened. Um, at the time, I think we had done like $150,000 in sales in the 12 months prior. Um, though I'm not hundred percent sure that's right, but it was something around there. So it was like enough that friends and family could look at it and be like, there is sort of something there. It's not, it's not just an idea on a napkin. Um, and the first round was 440,000 total, um, raised from mostly friends and family, but we had two VCs in that did very early stage. One was, uh, Jesse Draper for Halogen. Mm, yeah. VC. And the other one um, was a company called iHatch, which has since changed names to HSVC. But they both wrote us like fifty to one hundred thousand dollars checks for that four hundred, and then we had friends and family put in, you know, twenty five to fifty, and got to the got to the number, and that gave us enough runway for about eighteen months, um, with me hiring one part time person and getting an office, which was just like the tiniest desk you've ever seen and like the tiniest WeWork you've ever seen. <laughs> But that was a massive step up. I was literally running from business from a, from a closet in my living room. I had like a closet with doors that kind of went around it to close it. So at the end of the night, I could be like, goodbye desk and close the doors. Um, but it literally wasn't even an office in my apartment. It was, it was a closet. It was a closet. So we work with a big step up. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the first round. And basically I went around, the way I got people to give me the money was going around and saying, look, Okay, forget about the fact that I was a celebrity journalist for a decade. Like in a year with zero help of any kind and no idea how this industry works, I sold $150,000 worth of tickets. I figured out a way to give them to people. Everybody got to their shows. Nobody really complained. People had a good time. We had repeat customers. What else do you want? <laughs> it was about what I could do if you gave me, you know, a, and I didn't have an SSL certification on the website. <laughs> like I didn't know what that was. You... I think said another way, like there was, uh, it wasn't an idea that you were pitching. You were saying, look at this traction. Like, like I, I have real traction. It's not just an idea or a pie in the sky. It's something that, uh, people are actually using and wanting. When you think about those early days now, would you have done anything different in how you raised your early funding? Would you still have gone through that exact same process or would you have done things differently knowing, you know, knowing now what you do? Um, I think I actually, I think that I did it a good way. I think it made a lot of sense. Um, The number one thing that I am grateful that I did was I never at any point have raised more money than I felt I needed at that moment. 
Um, it doesn't give you the luxury of buying billboards in Times Square and having a personal assistant, which I know other people who run startups, even in my own space, like have those things and it's important to them. What it did allow me to do was have 100%, I mean, not 100%, but to have effectively veto power to do what I wanted because I didn't have like a huge board. I didn't have a ton of people on my cap table. Um, I, I really got carte blanche to run it for a long, long time, which enabled me to try things, have them fail, kill them quickly, not have to have a big talk about it, uh, put it in two lines, an investor letter that was going to a bunch of my friends and move on. And so I was able to learn really fast and I was able to retain more ownership of the company. So I think those two things are, if you really believe in your idea, it can be very tempting to take the biggest check you can get because it's just like, it's so much more peace of mind. But I think the thing I've seen happen so many times to a lot of my counterparts that have taken those bigger checks is then there's this crazy pressure to, to spend the check. Like you have to show this crazy growth and take over this huge piece of the industry or else you're kind of, no one wants to give you more money. And even if you do that, you still have to go get more money because you, you're not profitable. So um, that I thought was good. I, I would definitely have been less humble in my early pitches. Um, I, I definitely signed one contract early on that I, I don't regret signing it. I know why I signed it. Um, it was with one of the, one of the um, larger investors, but it gave a bit more, it gave more equity for quote unquote, like advising type stuff, mm -hmm. all the things they were going to help me with, which I'm sure you'll see where that's going, but I, I don't believe we ever spoke after that. And it's a constant, like every time I see it on the cap table, I'm like, mm. you know, it's just like, just, I, and I can never get rid of it. And it just is what it is. And like, we're, I, it sucks. Like that sucks. It feels, it feels awful to have somebody that you thought was going to really do something and give them something kind of, uh, you know, with, in good faith and then have them not deliver. And I think, Anybody that's talking to you about how their money is more valuable because they're going to bring you all these other things. Um, I think the things that are commonly mentioned are like, I'm going to mentor you. I'm going to bring you other investors. I'm going to, once, once people see my name on the cap table, they're all going to write you checks. That's another good one people say all the time, um, which is sometimes true, but not nearly as often as they think it is. There's a mm -hmm. lot more people who think their name is going to get checks that, that no one cares. Um or that they're going to just like be more hands-on. I, I want more equity because I'm going to be more hands-on. Like, I don't think people are inherently lying to you, but I think that you get in front of them and in that moment, they really mean what they're saying. But the next moment someone else comes in and they also mean it for that person. Oh, and there's I see. just not enough hours in the day. And so I, I am very, I, I learned my lesson on that. Um, and I have been extremely I don't know if stingy is the right word, but I have been, I have made things vest over long periods of time with easy outs. Um, I don't usually tie that kind of equity to deliverables because it just gets like, it's just like not worth the, the brain damage to like imagine all the things they could deliver, but it's just a blanket. Like I can end this at any time. Like here's what you'll get, but it's vesting over four years plus and I can end it at any time. And then as soon as I feel like I'm not getting it, I end it. And I've done that a couple of times and it's all, it's been on really good terms. Um, and it's never been that they got nothing. They always got something, but there's a point where they're just distracted by newer things. Yeah. And you're like, this is I'm not getting what I was going to get out of it now anymore. So like, we're going to reevaluate what this is. Um, 
But that's so, actually, people are generally adult about that. But I, that's one thing I would be very cautious of for new people going out to get new money is like goodies. So, so that's what I was actually going to ask more about, which is, I think kind of you, you pointed out that it's, you know, in hindsight, it's very easy to see, like you said, it's like, well, of course they have all of these new founders that come in and they can't give the same attention. But in that moment, you feel like this is the only relationship that you have. So well, when you, you when that's, right, that's their job, when you <laughs> to mentor, make you exactly. So when you mentor other you know, whether it doesn't just have to be females, like young entrepreneurs, and they are in that moment where they're talking to the VCs and, the, you know, the VCs are saying, oh, I, I can help with this way and this way. You know, what advice do you have for them? Are there certain questions that you ask? It sounds like you've tried to make certain stipulations in the contracts to make sure like, yeah. what, what, what um, do you recommend? So for what it's worth, the people who did that to me were not the VCs of the world were much more like, here's my money, go make my, go make a lot more money. That was like the VC. They, they made me feel like I was important, but on um, the, like the, the goodies, my name is special people. Those people for me tended to be angel investors who have a last name that most people would recognize from somewhere. Like not that they wouldn't know why, but it's like a last name that like, you know, their family has a jet or whatever. Got right? it. You at least know that much about them. And, um, so what I tell people now is just, I, again, like, I don't think it's worth the brain damage of trying to map out the 9,000 things you think this person might do for you as an advisor. Mm. But as soon as anybody mentions an advisorship for equity, I tell people just the easiest thing is great. It's going to vest. You put it vesting over a time period that you feel comfortable with and you give yourself the ability to cancel it at any time within 30 days of like written notice. Um, and like anytime I've actually done that to someone, it's, it has been remarkably friendly. Like even from their end where I'm just like, I think we both know you really haven't had the time in the last two months to put in the way you did for the first 10 months. Like, I think we'd all agree to that. And I actually, again, cause I don't think they're like bad people that are trying to get free equity. You know, they, like, once, like once you bring it to their attention, you're like, I kind of think you haven't really sent an email for me in like two months. They're like, oh yeah, you're kind of right. They're not happy. They're not like excited to be having their vesting end, but they're still on your cap table. You're really upfront about what you expected. You know, I think it's on, um, I think it's an easy way to protect yourself. Uh, it's hard when you look, the bottom line is if you need the money, everything is, is weighted against how much do you need the money forever, always. So if you have $0 and you need a half a million dollars to continue running your business and this person says, I want extra equity because you make me an advisor or I want an advisory board seat or I want whatever to like, because of whatever reason this is important to me, then you decide whether when you're two years down the road, looking at your cap table, will you feel good that you got through that hurdle and your business still exists and it's much bigger. And yes, this person's on your cap table and they have this chunk that you're like, you didn't do anything. Or can you not deal with that? And if you can't deal with that, then that is, you shouldn't take it as tempting as it is. But again, like everything is weighted against keeping the company alive. Um, I think that, so, I think, sorry, I, I, sorry to cut you off. I'm just, okay. I'm, I'm like, uh, it makes so much sense. Like there's nothing inherently wrong with the VC that's offering, uh, you know, advisory time in order for equity. But I think that uh, the difference or like what I'm hearing you say is like, don't let that be a distraction around making sure that you've kind of like covered your bases. Cause in the yeah. moment it's, 
oh my gosh, well, if this person could just intro me to this person and this person, this person, you start to envision all of these imaginary value that's not really there only to find right? They're also like, I can pick up the phone and call Mark Cuban and blah, 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 like all these, and they probably can. Like, and they probably think in that moment that they're going to do that. And they may or may not actually do that. Um, And they may call him and he's not interested. Like you don't, you just don't, there's too many things in a quote. I just think of it, the the thing that comes up in, that has come up for me many times is this advisorship, which what, what the way I think of an advisorship in general is it's a way to effectively give them equity at a lower valuation than everybody else. That's really what they're trying to get to, in my experience. They basically want more for less. And to protect your company's valuation, you can say, they're giving me a hundred grand, but they're also giving me this other nebulous thing, which we're right. going to say is worth a hundred grand. And now my valuation is protected. So everyone else who's investing you're getting X for your money. Mm. And look, that is not a bad way to go. If you have somebody whose check you need and they want to give you a lower valuation, that is a great option for a way to do it. Just know that that's the real value. That's in that happening. Being, basically, you're making a decision to protect the rest of the investment, right? That's really what you're doing. Um, you don't expect to get anything out of the advisorship ever no matter who it is. Like, just don't, if you get something out of it, great. If you don't get anything out of it, but you know why you signed it, then you won't feel bad about it. But I think what you're saying is that, you know, don't just go into it with like, oh, everything is going to be perfect. And they're going to be this amazing advisor. You have to take some, take one step back to realize that, hey, if things, they may not live up to any of their word. And if they don't, am I going to be okay with that? If the answer is no, I'm not going to be okay with it. Then you need to make sure that you've communicated that in your contract or you've created an out for yourself. And I think that's the part that, you know, people get so wooed by this, like you said, this nebulous thing of, I can connect you with all of these people, but then they have no protections in the event that they don't do that. And I think that's like a big learning that seems like you've taken away. Yeah. It's um, again, like, I, I didn't have a fancy business school degree. This was my first, like, I'm a first time CEO. Uh, I was, you know, they Googled me before the meeting and like the first four things that pop up are like the articles I wrote about Kim Kardashian that morning. We'd be in the meeting. Like, did you write this? I did write that, but I also delivered a hundred Broadway tickets. Um, But that's where I, that was the place where my meeting started. So when the only way for me to get this check that I needed was to take that, I took it. But when I took it, I truly thought in my heart that they were going to do all these things, which weren't, by the way, the things that this person, that this group said they would do, it wasn't like, I'm going to call Mark Cuban. Like that, I probably would have been like slightly more wary of. They were like, we're going to have a weekly phone call for one hour where you can just ask us anything. We're going to give you one analyst for like an hour a week. It was stuff that like felt really doable. You know, so like that made me feel like it was doable. Mm. I know it's somebody who I had known for a long, long time. The person who happened to be writing the check was somebody that I had known for 15 years at this point. So I felt like that person was going to do right by me because we had this relationship in advance. And because the things that he was saying, like seemed, they seemed again, very attainable. Like, let's get that on the schedule. And then I literally couldn't get things scheduled. So I eventually just kind of gave up. 
that's like also a very interesting point because I'm, I think that there's probably some people that are listening and they're just like, yeah, but Elizabeth, like you should have known this or you should have known that. And like, Oh, you know, she just needed the money, but you're saying like, Hey, like even when you have great relationships with people and, and like, you know, business is a, is a tough sport and like you have to, at some level, be able to play these different scenarios out. And I think that's really important for people to know that even when you have mentors for a decade, you still need to make sure that you are protecting yourself or at least having these open dialogues. And uh, I, I think that that's something that not a lot of entrepreneurs talk a lot about. Yeah, I looking back on it, the thing that that group did that was absolutely vital for me at the time was they were the first recognizable name of any kind that gave me a check that had like six digits. So they did that. And that internally made me feel like this was a real thing and helped me go out to raise the rest of the money, not because they actually helped with anything, but because I just felt like I had this stamp of approval mm-hmm. in my own house that I didn't have before. Looking back on it, I'm like, I really didn't need that. Like I could have probably done it without that stamp of, I don't think anybody looked at their name and was like, I'm going to invest because these people are here. Mm-hmm. Um, But in my mind, they were like more, they were important enough to me that that made me feel like I could go do the rest of it. So that's not nothing. I don't regret it. I know why I did it, but I would tell other people, like when you hear the word advisor in particular, I would think about it. Cool. What, what was the kind of the timeline or the trajectory before you started to move from just like you and maybe like one other person or two to start to bring new members on the team? Was there, was it very quick where you went from a small, very tiny shop to now starting to bring on team members or what was the process like for you? Yeah, no, it wasn't quick. Um, I, I want to keep the burn low. I think again, like the, the only kind of like legs you have to stand on when it comes to the game of like raising money is I don't need your money. So getting to a place where you don't need the money has always been the most important thing to me ahead of being the biggest or the fur, like any of that just wasn't as important um, because I, it might be like a Mars Venus thing too. I would rather have something that lives that's you know, modest by VC standards but that I built that lives, that generates revenue, that employs people, that continues to live versus like blow it up and like see what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, so because of that mentality, I was very cautious about hiring people. I, after we raised the first 440, I hired one person part-time who was still a student and he worked for me for like 18 months and I didn't bring on any other team members until I guess about 18, about maybe 14 months post that raise, we had then raised, we had then since gotten into an incubator at Morgan Stanley, raised another million and a half dollars. And then I brought in one developer and one kind of like operations person. And um, that was it for a long, long, long time. I just had a conversation yesterday with a founder about operations and, and when you yourself are so involved in the operations, would you still have gone back and hired an operator? Or, or do you think that, you know, because like when you're a very operational CEO, does it cause conflict when you bring in an operator or does it actually add value in your, in your circumstance? Um, well, I had to have another, op- I didn't have enough hours to do it. 
Um, I also hired operations team members who were not only operations team members. Um, We're in a specific kind of quirky industry. So there are people who love theater, who love doing all kinds of things related to theater and who can flow seamlessly from operations to customer service, to Mm. writing a blog post, to writing a press release. Um, They're all... I've never hired anybody for a job that they stayed in without changing their role at all within like three months. Um, And when Broadway disappeared, I didn't let a single person go. We just all got new jobs. Um, And I think that was unusual. I think that's a very unusual circumstance. I I still have a very modest team, but I think we're like the only company that didn't just like literally close shop, turn the lights off and say like, we'll see you, you know, in May of 2021. Bye. Um, and I'm, I'm really proud of that. I think I, I think it's, I actually think it's less important the roles that you fill and more important who you put, who you put in them. Mm. Um, because once you get the right person, once you get some good people in there, they will find, you will all together figure out what you should be doing all day. And I think that's, that is way more important than making sure that they like check all the boxes on whatever the resume requirement you thought was especially in a startup where the boxes are changing every single day and there's yeah. there's so much the only person who has a job that they were hired for is the developer because <laughs> none of us know how to do any of that and none of us know what she does and so you know there is she is on she is a ship of island of her own and everyone else does everything yeah what is your favorite aspect of running your own business um my favorite aspect of running my own business is having like a crazy thought in the morning, like, well, I always say like, if you don't think about it in the shower, you shouldn't be doing it. Like if you don't like think about your job while you're in the shower, you have the wrong job. You should definitely be thinking about your job while you're washing your hair. And, um, I love having, I don't know if it's like the power is the right word, but having this idea coming in, sitting down my team being like, guys, I had this idea. And then getting an absolute gut, like read the room response. I'd say like, 70% 70% of the time, it's like, I hadn't thought of that, but it's not crazy. We should try it. And then 30% of the time, it's like, go take another shower. Like, no, that's not, that is not what we're doing. Um, but like, I listen to my team. Like, they're, you know, I have a final say, but like, I hired them because I thought they had good input. So if you don't listen to the input, then it's pointless. Um, but I mean, honestly, like the idea for the pivot was something that I kind of had floating around in the back of my head for like three days and came into work one day and turned around to like the, you know, operations manager and was like, what if we did such and such? And she was like, I don't know. That's not like, it's not like terrible idea. I was like, okay, so let's try, let's see what everyone else thinks. Does anyone else think it's a terrible <laughs> idea? In you know, two weeks we had it up and running um, because it was that or no one had a job. Now, I, I want to talk about, you know, the onset of COVID and, and how you guys have pivoted the company. Uh, what is, what is, it doesn't have to be your least favorite aspect, but what's an aspect of like running your business that you weren't expecting? Because I think when you're like the only person that's driving to and from, you know, the theater, you're the one doing the ops, you're the one doing the sales. It's, it's really like easy for you to kind of build your own defense mechanisms. But once you start bringing on other team members, there's so much more uh, you know, variables that come into play. So what's like one of your least favorite aspects of being a CEO or a leader of a venture backed startup that people don't often think are, yeah. My absolute least favorite thing about running a startup is 
how much I care about all of my unhappy customers. Mm. Not that I have a lot of them. doesn't take a lot. It takes like one. Um, it took a while for my chief of staff, operations manager, and operations coordinator to wrestle the info box out of my grasp so that I am not aware of the customer service issues that are happening and they are handling them. Um, and it's not because I don't trust them. It's not because I try to micromanage. It's because I truly want every single person who buys a ticket to have a great time. And um, it, it took a lot out of me the first, the first like two years, I didn't have anybody else to answer. I insisted that we have a phone number. Um, I thought it was important for growth because I, I think there were, people are very wary of ticketing in particular. They think ticketing is like very shady. They think you're a broker. They think you're a scalper. And like having a phone number that was basically free, it's a Google voice number um, that they can call. And I'm like, hi. And they're like, oh, a person. You're like, yeah, I'm standing in Times Square. <laughs> like I'm in front of waitress. Um, actually like closed a lot of sales at the beginning. Not because I was actually selling them, but just like, oh, a person. It's a real business. And people would call and be like, you're not a scalper. And I'd be like, nope. And they'd be like, okay, thanks. That was like really all it took. Um, but I didn't, I don't think I really appreciated like the, the mental toll that was going to take over the course of never having a day off for yeah. like two years. That was really hard. What have you learned about being a leader? You know, or, or maybe even said another way, how is being a leader different than just working for yourself? Um, is it bad that my like running joke with my, with my chief of staff is that we need to get shirts that say I cry at work? <laughs> um what was the question why uh, do i learn about being a leader yeah what have you learned about being a leader and and uh, you know asked another way uh like how is being a leader different than just being like your own self-sustaining unit because like yeah, once you I have think, a, yeah i think um i mean the, the obvious difference about being a leader versus being your own self-sustaining unit is it's one thing if i'm like running a broadway ticketing company and it go, implodes and i go back to like crashing weddings. It's another thing if I employ people who are trying to use this to like learn things, build their career, go on to other really cool things, like do development, like all that kind of stuff. I, I feel very responsible for all of these people in a way that I don't think I appreciated in advance. Um, but I think that's actually really, really lovely. I don't know with it yeah, sounding maybe very cheesy, but I, I think the best thing I've done as a CEO is hire an amazing team um, who is smarter than me, more creative than me, and frankly, like more resilient than I am in a lot of ways. So that when I say like, I had this weird idea in the shower, um, having people who have just had their entire industry literally wiped out. This is not like I'm a wedding planner and no one's getting married. This is like, we are legally not, there is no business for us. We cannot sell a single ticket everybody that they know has been laid off. All their roommates are laid off. All their friends are laid off. Like the whole tenor of what they're going through is it like sucks, right? Like it, it just, it sucks. Um, and having a group that can take that and then in the midst of all that be like, okay, how do I become like a Zoom host? How do I reach out to talent? Time to start DMing all these people that I dated four years ago or whatever <laughs> it is. Like having people that are willing to do that. I think there's an element of like, you know, being able to like psych yourself up, like group think that like, it's going to work. We're going to do it and it's going to work is really important. And as a leader, you have to be able to not build that out of nothing, but 
gather a group of people together who can build that together. Um, I wouldn't have been able to do that on my own. Elizabeth, Elizabeth, you just, you know, you started talking a bit about, you know, what Broadway uh, roulette has become. And, and, and I know you're, we're going to talk about the zoom and the, ho and kind of what that, that is. Can you bring us back to early March? Like what, what's the impetus? Like what bring us back to kind of like the story of like when things started to get crazy. I, I, I remember it was like uh, probably the toughest moment, uh, you know, potentially of your whole life. So uh, talk to us about early March. What what was what was that like for you? My, the thing I remember the most is my dad was supposed to come visit at the end of March. And the beginning of March, he told me that he was going to potentially cancel his trip because he thought that everything was going to get canceled and it was going to be a pain to get a refund for his airline ticket. And I was like, you're always such an over, like, you're such an overreactor, like, whatever, fine, don't come. Um, and then like within two weeks, um, the first like real thing that happened was that Governor Cuomo declared New York in a state of emergency. So we spent like three days having customers call and be like, can I go to the show? And we were like, yes, you can go to the show. And if you don't go to the show, you can't have a refund because the show is playing and we can't do anything about it. Like there was, and that was like, that was kind of sticky. Um, but it wasn't awful. And then it very quickly from the moment that that happened, I think by the following Wednesday, that was on like a Saturday and by Wednesday, Wednesday or thir it was Thursday, they had a press conference, like 1.45. And there are matinees that start at two. And they had a press conference at 1.45 where he was like, no gatherings of 500 or more, all Broadway shows are dark. And we had people like walking into a theater at that point with tickets to go see a show that was supposed to start. And then they all got walked out of the theater to go home. Um, and uh, I mean, I don't, that sucked. Like, I don't, I don't even, it's like they announced that they were going to be closed for a month. And I was sitting with my chief of staff and I was just like, both of us just couldn't, we were like a month. Like they're going to be closed for a month. Like when nine 11 happened and New York city was literally on fire. The city was on fire, Broadway closed for two nights and then was back up and running. I'm like, there's no, I was like, and then we, we talked about it and she was like, look, it's good that they just get nip it in the bud, close for one month. When they come back, everyone knows that's safe. We won't have to deal with all these customer calls. And also then we don't have to explain if our growth is slower. Cause we can just be like, look, we lost a whole month as opposed to like what had been happening for the last five days where we were like, no, you still have to go to the show or like you can mm -hmm. choose not to go, but we can't refund you. Like, and then it became very clear. I mean, they, they are going to be closed until March of next year, probably. Maybe, maybe past that. Wow. And that's not announced. It's announced through January, but like it will be March. Everyone who's setting up shows for next year are starting them in March and April because nobody really believes it's going to be January. Um, but when it happened, I mean, everybody went home. Nobody really knew if they, we, we, I think people didn't come back to the office after that, but everybody had been coming in until that point. I came into the office. Um, cause I still had childcare for a few more days before the nanny said she wasn't coming anymore, or we decided no, that she shouldn't come anymore. And I came to the office. I had had a, ba I had a four month old baby at home. I was like, basically walked to the office with my breast pump, sat here and cried for like six hours. But like, even that felt better than just staying home. Like there wasn't at the beginning, there was a lot to do. The operations team was really busy because we had all these, like, you know, basically the question is like, how do we get everybody to take a credit instead of a refund? Yeah. And like, we do to work on the cash flow because part of the beauty of the business model that we normally have is that customers are buying tickets in advance, but we're not buying them until much closer to the actual date. And so we have this negative working capital that's continually growing, right? 
And all of a sudden that just disappeared. Like revenues went from $400,000 in a month to zero. Um, and that's insane. So uh, that was wild. We got through the first piece of what we, you know, getting everybody situated and taking care of all the customers that had orders. The next thing was like, what are we going to do with this month of downtime? So we like made a list of things we were going to do. We did all of those things. Then it was announced Broadway was going to be closed until June. We made a new list. We did all those things. Um, it was a lot of stuff that we don't have time to do when we're growing really fast. Mm -hmm. um, updates and cleaning up like, you know, messaging and emails and, you know, stuff that just kind of like always falls by the wayside. We just got all that stuff done. And then it announced it was going to be September. And when it announced it was going to be September, we were like, maybe we should try to get some more revenue. And we started thinking of ideas. And um, we brainstormed a lot of ideas. And some of them were really bad. I mean, a lot of them were really bad. At one point, we were floating the idea of becoming a thermometer maker. Like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> like doing like Broadway roulette branded thermometer. They're like, like, you should go take another shower. Go. Yeah. No, <laughs> they're going to need those. Like, what is Broadway going to need to get back? Um, so some of the ideas were really, really bad. Um, but then this one idea was like, maybe we could, we, we kind of, I was trying to think of what can we do that utilizes the zoom format versus like works against it or like tries to adapt to it. Cause I think I'm not somebody who sits around watching like concerts on Instagram live. I find it really boring. Um, but I also know there's this huge group of people that like is craving entertainment and specifically theater and basically just can't have it. Mm -hmm. And what could we do that isn't necessarily a replacement, but a different option that can kind of scratch that itch that isn't trying to put on a show in front of a computer. And um, we kind of brainstormed like half jokingly, what are things we're good at? And the things we came up with were drinking, socializing and crafting amongst us. And so we got this idea to do these like basically social events. It's kind of like a watch what happens live feeling where we have people who are trained in like celebrity journalism and, and comedians like me, um, not that I'm a comedian, but like journalists host these kind of small rooms where you have these surprise guests who are Broadway stars and they come in and it's very conversational and the audience can ask questions. And once in a while they do kind of a surprise performance, but you're not really there for, to see a performance. You're there to like talk to them. And, uh, that actually went really well. And, um, we didn't do, we haven't done any advertising, but we're basically selling them all out. Um, and we have kind of multiple approaches to that. So like one is this B2C version, which is just, you know, anybody can sign up and you get these three random surprise guests. Um, it's only 45 minutes. We have each person in for 15 minutes total. The idea is that you're never bored because even if they're not super interesting, they're gone in 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. um, but everyone is like, everyone is really interesting because these are professional entertainers. Like their whole life is about, they're like VCs. Their whole life is about pitching people. Right. So when they get on the camera and it's like time to talk about themselves, they're not bad at that. They're good at that. Um, and then the second version that we built was, uh, basically for schools and like theater camps and places that can't like take them to go see stuff. And that has a higher price point and is more curated. Right. And then like the real moneymaker is a corporate offering. Um, and so my chief of staff, uh, is what she likes to call like a recovering corporate lawyer. <laughs> and one of the things that she talks about a lot is like, you know, your job really blows, but they do a really good job of like whining and dining you and coming up with all these fancy things. So it like reminds you that you're doing this job you hate so that you can go see Hades town and sit in the front row or whatever. 
Um, but they can't, all those, all those summer programs couldn't do their normal whining and dining this year. Like they can't take them to see Hades town because Hades town isn't performing. Mm-hmm. They me and I can bring you three people from Hades town and they can talk to you and answer your questions and give you a little summary and do a performance. And like, it feels casual and fun and you can tack it on to the end of your like six hour zoom that you've been on that day with like training. Um, and the budgets for those like reflect a corporate budget. Like what would you have paid to take them to see Hades town? And so we only have to do a few of those a month to get to break even. Yeah. So that's like where our energy really has been. The nice thing with the B2C ones is it gives an opportunity for, you know, anybody who just misses theater to kind of get their dose. And so it's really good for like engagement, which is something that Broadway is really, really struggling with. Um, Cause how do you keep people engaged for like a year? Like for a year, there's going to be no theater and other things are available. That's the other piece of it is it's one thing to compete for their attention when they can't leave their house. It's another thing to compete for their attention when they can do anything except what you sell. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like go to a restaurant, they can go to an outdoor concert like that quite all hasn't happened yet, but it's starting to, and it certainly will happen before Broadway opens. So what we were trying to think of is like, what's something that's supplementary that we can continue when Broadway opens that we can sell as an add-on that shows can use as a marketing, you know, marketing tool um, to try to expand our reach versus building something that's like going to be dead as soon as Broadway's back. And I think what's, you know, what's cool. It's like, it goes all the way back to like your very early career. It's like, there's a million ways to get the customer to entertain them and to enjoy, but like, you can't always look at it as just like, this is what we do. You have to be able to evolve and you have to be able to, you know, bring them new versions of the same thing. And and I think it's so cool to see that like there's such a difference between doing celebrity journalism and getting in the front door versus doing what you're doing now, but it still takes the same heart and the same like grit. I, mean, I am not joking that my, one of my operations team members, I will not say which one it is because like she'll kill me, but literally we started with who are the people that you used to date that are on Broadway? <laughs> like DM them now. Let's get them in for some like mixers. They can do it for free because they're your friends. Like, let's test it out. There are guinea pigs. Then they can introduce us to their friends. That's how, because I didn't want to go through any managers. I didn't want to, like, I just, no, like, we're not doing that right now. It's too much of a pain. We need to make sure this actually has legs before we kind of get into the weeds of like, I'm not negotiating with your manager about a 15 minute appearance um, from your house. But also having, like, the thing that I think was so important was I hired somebody like her that I hired her because I thought she kind of had that hustle, mm-hmm. right? So when I'm like, do you mind doing that? She's like, no, it's cool. I'll do it. Yeah, Which you got it. You, do you think Do you think that while like COVID has completely, you know, torn apart kind of so many pieces of the business, do you think that there's silver linings or maybe the better question is what are some of the silver linings that you've seen come out of it? I only have one. <laughs> that I can actually think of. There might be two. The one I can, the one that is absolutely silver lining is that, um, as I said before, one of the things that comes up in my VC pitches, which still will come up is Broadway is a $2 billion industry. I'm so bored. And you're like, when you add West End, it's $3 billion. And they're like, I'm still so bored. Um, once you say, Hey, what we're doing here is the secret sauce is not Broadway. The secret sauce is any kind of live entertainment that has a really dedicated fan base where they don't traditionally get direct access except for for through like very, very sanitized social media, which probably isn't run by that person anyway. Mm -hmm. 
we can connect them directly because we've built this platform that there's nothing special about it in terms of ex- of like the the actual tech. But the execution is like magical because we have these journalists on who know how to talk to the stars so that everybody in the room feels like they're really meeting them, even though they're not really saying anything all that controversial. We can then take that and apply it to theater anywhere in the world, like any theater group that has any place that where people love theater, because you don't have to be in New York or Broadway or West End to connect like that. Yeah. Um, my fantasy is Love Island. That's my new pitch is we're going to get, I don't know if you watch Love Island or know Love Island, but it is an amazing- My wife movie. definitely does. <laughs> okay. So Love Island, my pitch is now, they have crazy fan bases. Most of those people end up leaving and they make like a couple- checks upon leaving over Instagram and then it goes away. We can pay them a continuing revenue stream to do these mixers and hook them up with Love Island fans. We're then going to ask them about something that happened four years ago on episode nine. And that's what we're going to do. And it's going to be Love Island. It's going to be fashion industry. And it's going to be like real housewives, all of those places. And then just like, just like in the broad, in the main roulette ticketing platform, you know, every show is a, all the shows are a surprise. You don't know what you're getting, but we include every show. So some customers will end up seeing like the Hamiltons and Lion King and places that don't ever have discounted tickets. And they paid 49 to $59 for that seat. It's the same thing on the mixers where like once in a while you're like, it's Erica Jane or it's Patty Lapone or it's whoever. It's like some huge person is dropping in and we can get them to participate now because the pitch to them is, Hey, Patty Lapone, like you don't need money, but everybody who works with you in the show company is currently unemployed and they need money. And if you come to one mixer, I can show you that I will then sell 20 more mixers and I can employ your entire team, all of your co-stars for a month if you come. And that is like a very easy, they, they, they get it. And um, that can apply to so many industries. Like things I don't even know about. Like, I'm like, people keep saying sports. I'm like, yeah, yeah, sports. Cause like, I, I don't know who I'm going to call for sports, but like any of those places, cause anyone who misses connecting with their fans, yeah, like they music, miss it too. Totally. Um, yeah. So that, the silver lining there is that my TAM has gone from being whatever it was. I mean, honestly, like I, I have five different versions of what my TAM is and I'm, I'm fine saying that cause I think everybody does. And my other piece of advice to investors, not investors, to people that are trying to get investment, when people ask, what's your TAM? It's like, what do you want my TAM to be? And then figure <laughs> out how to Everybody has a different thought on it, but like it, you can you can model out however you want to model something out. Right. Um, now that I can say definitively, like I, ha- I have a theater in Miami paying me X thousands of dollars a month to do this thing from my living room that I can do by Instagramming, DMing people. But now that I have the in, I've got kind of like the toehold on that corners, like this industry. So Broadway people are going to do this through me because they now know me and they know they get paid on time and they know that like, we're going to ask reasonable questions and the fans are going to be controlled. Like now that I have that, um, that question that like the TAM problem is a, is a little bit gone. Um, the, there can be questions that remain about like, how are you going to protect it? How are you going to keep someone else from copying? Those things still exist, but the, the basic, like I'm never opening this because the third page shows me a TAM that's too small. Mm-hmm. That's wrong. And that's a big silver lining. Um, the other silver lining is I actually, we are probably, we are not, pro- we, are, we are likely going to get to break even before the end of the year without Broadway reopening 
based on our new product, um, based on these mixers. And that's because our budget is cut in half because we're not advertising. And the real money maker for this is these corporate sales, which like I have a sales team of two, me and this other person who used to be a lawyer and we're going out and doing that. And um, like long-term, that's not a way to scale or run a business. But for right now in this particular environment, like if we can end the year and be like, not like F you to everybody, but like we're break even. So we'll take the money we want and we'll grow the way we want. Yeah. Um, that's pretty remarkable story. Uh, Elizabeth, for, for people that didn't, uh, cause you've mentioned the word mixer. It, it is Broadway yeah. mixer, right? Like this is the, yeah. or is it Broadway roulette mixer? What's the, what's the all Broadway roulette mixer, but our Instagram handle is Broadway mixer. Broadway mixer. Uh, Elizabeth, what are you most excited about this summer? I know there's a lot to be not excited about, but what are you most excited about? Um, I am most excited about the summer. What am I most excited about? I think I'm most excited about having, by the end of the summer, we will have had between like five and 10 corporate mixers under our belt to the tune of, you know, tens of thousands, to the tune of like almost paid our overhead. And, um, that feels really good when I think about the fact that, in early April, I was packing up my sister-in-law's gold minivan with canned food and driving to Virginia with no idea if my company would survive, if I would ever see any of my team members again. Um, it feels like a long way from there in a very short period of time. Yeah. And and I think it's kind of like what you said about your favorite thing about being a leader is like like you had whether it's the power or whatever you want to call it, like to see it to fruition, right? That like, there was a there's moment. Something nice. There's something yeah. nice about being like, I got this idea, let's go do it. Um, but I don't really run the company that way. At least I don't think I do. Um, I, I do think I listen when people are like, we don't want to make thermometers. I'm like, okay, we don't make thermometers. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but there, there is something really uh, magical about being able to, create enterprise out of effectively nothing, right? I mean, we basically, like, it's hard to think of an environment where we had less to work with yeah. than Broadway closed. Here's your team, figure out what to do. And, you know, the response from both the customers, but also from the talent, uh, which is not only onstage talent, we include like set designers and wardrobe people and like, you know, the whole, we had a girl who's a specialist in puppets the other day, I mean, she had amazing stories about puppet things going wrong on Broadway stages. Um, and it, they're like super fascinating people. And having, being able to like see them getting in front of the fans, you know, or the would be theater goers and like how much, I don't want to be like, they light up because that just sounds so lame. But like these people are professional performers, like mm -hmm. giving them a channel to both earn a little bit of money and connect with and like remind themselves again of the thing that they like so much, which is live performance. That's why they're a part of theater and not doing television as their primary, primary company, like business, like getting that has been like the thing that's been really, really, like, that's that cool. fun. Yeah. Like, that's I, awesome. really invent, I invented something. You're welcome. You're welcome. But it's just, this was, I, you know, I, I cried so much. I couldn't cry anymore. Like there's just no two ways about it. There was, there was nothing else to, to say. It was like, I couldn't, 
cry. I got to the place where I just couldn't cry anymore. And then we started talking about making thermometers. Wow. Well, Elizabeth, uh, this has uh, been like an awesome, awesome podcast. I thank you so much for the time. Where can people get in contact with you or like where, where do you, mo- or is it, you know, social media or email? Like what's the best place yeah, for I mean, if really, investors? Or- we're especially paying attention to all of our social media DMs right now. So it's a great time to reach us over. We're not hard to reach. Let's put it that way. Um, but we're at Broadway Roulette at Broadway Mixer. We have a phone number on our website. If you call it, I will answer because I mercifully took everyone else off of our Vonage line when Broadway closed. Um, and uh, there's like a general info box and we really do read it every day. And um, my last two hires have been people who just emailed me out of the blue. So don't be shy. Thank you so much. Elizabeth, thanks for joining us today on Demo Day. Yeah, yeah thanks. Take care. You're so Bye. welcome. Bye. I'm Sean Goldman from Coefficient Labs. This is Demo Day. Thank you. Thank you.